0: Hey, Matt Techman here from Elucidations. Before we get going today, I just thought I'd ask if you're a fan of the show to maybe go to our iTunes page and leave a rating and or review, and that way more people can discover it. All right, thanks. Hello, and welcome to Elucidations, a philosophy podcast recorded at the University of Chicago. I'm Matt Teichman, and with me today is Christina Van Dyke, associate professor of philosophy, director of gender studies, and executive director of the Society of Christian Philosophers at Calvin College. And she is here to discuss gender and medieval mysticism. Christina Van Dyke, welcome. Thank you, Matt. All right, so medieval mysticism is probably not a philosophical movement that most people are familiar with. What's the general sort of like time period and location we're talking about when we talk about medieval mysticism?
1: Right. So, one thing when you, as soon as you start talking about medieval mysticism, that's important to make clear is that it's not a sort of unified movement that took place from this year to that year and involved, you know, just these people. It's more that over the course of the 11th century through sort of mid 14th century, 15th century, you have a number of people in a number of different places in Europe who are sort of having common experiences and talking about similar things. And we tend to lump that all together and talk about the medieval mystics as though it were sort of a coherent movement. and. That's you know obviously doing injustice to how complex and how diverse the different sorts of views were. But that said, roughly from um, you know, the 11th century really through maybe mid-15th century, you have a growing number of people, and especially women, who are interested in talking about direct union with God and the kind of experience you can have of that in this life. So at this point in time, pretty much everybody assumes that we'll get some kind of union with God in the next life, but the whole kind of thrust of mysticism is that you have people who are working to try to achieve that sort of union in this life, or who have you know, experiences or visions of that kind of union that they then share with others.
0: So what, what exactly does union with God mean in this context? Does it mean like I have a conversation with God? Or does it mean that I see God for the first time? Or what, what exactly is this union talk getting at?
1: Yeah, well, that's a great question because it means so many different things at so many different points in time. And in fact, there are even two different strains of mysticism that you can distinguish right off the bat that have really different answers about what kind of union of god you're looking for so for example for some people union with god is the ultimate goal of human nature but what it ultimately requires is the complete loss of self so the kind of union of god that you have in that tradition isn't hey i'm walking with jesus or hey i can see god face to face Or, now I know God in a way I didn't know God before. It's the kind of radical merging with the divine that involves a total loss of self. And so those are sometimes called apophatic mysticism. a sort of unspeakable, literally sort of apophatic, unspeakable mysticism. And the idea is, if you still think you know something about God, you've got a long way to go yet because ultimate union with God surpasses any kind of knowledge. The only thing that we really mean when we talk about union with God is the union of our will.
0: So that sounds like it's somewhat in the tradition of what's called negative theology, which I guess I would gloss as the idea that God is so radically different from what we know, you know, in this world, there's nothing we can even really coherently say about God. There's nothing we can sort of know in the way that we know everyday facts
1: about God. Yeah, exactly. And so apophatic mysticism is really closely tied with sort of theological tradition of, well, I mean, what people like Aquinas end up talking about analogical predication for, right? So people like Aquinas end up claiming that you can't even use any language for God that isn't just an analogy because God's so different from us. And... Yeah, there's a long tradition of that. So Maimonides and the Jewish tradition, right? It's all about how the most we can say about God is what God's not. Sort of like negative theology. Yeah, and so the apathetic tradition fits with that. And what's interesting is the way that, it's, that it accepts on the one hand the complete transcendence or unknowability of God. And at the same time says there's a way to have union with that. And that is the strand of mysticism that most people think of when they think of mysticism. So it's people like Meister Eckhart, it's people like Nicholas of Cusa, Marguerite Paret. So there's that's the one strand of mysticism that has sort of continued on, however faintly, into contemporary conceptions of mysticism. And. The other strain of mysticism is sometimes called affective mysticism, like affect, or feeling, or emotion, because it looks at the kind of theology that sees God as totally unknowable or totally beyond anything we can experience, and it says, okay, but at the same time, if we're Christians, and the kind of medieval mysticism that I'm talking about is always part of the monotheistic and usually Christian tradition. There's a lot of really interesting Jewish and Islamic stuff on on the mystics. But the effective tradition tends to be a Christian tradition in, you know, especially the 13th century and onward, that emphasizes the second person of the Trinity. So it emphasizes the fact that God was supposed to have assumed flesh and become a human being. And so you get this really... Sort of poignant emphasis on the fact that God isn't just this completely transcendent, unknowable, beyond being kind of, well, not being, but rather, in part, this being, this person who was incarnate, who suffered, who had all the experiences that we did. And especially for a lot of the female mystics there's this identification with Christ's suffering, which involves, you know, say bleeding, right, and crying, and right, you get a lot of discussion about Christ's blood and the kind of identification of that with sort of female bodies and female, well, even like, well, I know, there's wacky stuff about breast milk and Christ's blood. and But effective mysticism is all about how Union with God fulfills the embodied self. So if apathetic mysticism is all about kind of transcending the self and just kind of self-abnegation into this unknowable God, affective mysticism is all about union with God involving this radical fulfillment of your body as well as, you know, sort of your soul. It kind of denies a sort of dualistic picture that you know has dominated western philosophy
0: so the tradition we're probably most familiar with in medieval philosophy is what you might call like medieval philosophical theology and this is what was happening in the universities at the time and it's very sort of aristotle centric it was very you know very a lot of emphasis on like logic and grammar almost like a medieval version of what we now call the philosophy of language Um,
1: (laughs) You say as a philosopher of language.
0: How did these two strands of mysticism, the uh, apophatic and the effective strand of mysticism, relate to the philosophy that was going on in the universities at the time?
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And, of course, any answer I can give is going to be sort of broad brushstrokes and, you know, there are exceptions to every rule. But in general, part of the rise of things like effective mysticism come from the rise of the university system. By the 13th century, you've got the real rise of the university system. And part of what that means is that before then, the monasteries were the center of learning, right? So if you were a nun, if you were a monk, you lived in, to some extent, the intellectual world. And once the university system really kicks in, women were explicitly excluded from studying and from participating in that life. And all of the sort of most promising intellectual candidates in the religious orders that were male were sent to the university. And so partly as a result of that, and partly as a result of some of the Gregorian church reforms, you get knowledge in the sort of intellectual studious sense being increasingly the purview of the universities. And so most of the people that were teaching in universities were still parts of religious orders, and they would have traveled all over, and they would have been very active. But you had to study at the universities to get that kind of knowledge. And so effective mysticism, which talks about like the experience that you have like in your body of union with Christ is the kind of experience that everybody can have. And so you get a lot of women and a lot of, well, some men that aren't involved in the university system in the same way. This plays a much bigger role in their lives because it's seen as an experience that's accessible to everybody. But at the same time, you get some of that in the apathetic tradition because originally it's sort of coming out of this Neoplatonic, sort of tradition of purification of the intellect right and sort of the ascension toward you know union with the divine but it's also something that as time goes on by the time you get to the 14th century isn't seen as requiring sort of school learning anymore all you need to do is surrender your will and in fact as time goes on you get people arguing that you know sort of university education interferes with our ability to surrender our wills to God. So you get these, these sort of like end of scholastic treatises complaining about how the more you study, the more you sort of distract yourself from what truing with God is like. Short answer, both strands of mysticism respond to the kind of increasing specialization of the university system by pushing against it in a way that makes experience of God and union of God something that everybody can have and that isn't just reserved for people in the universities.
0: Yeah, so the mystics were something like the street philosophers of uh, the medieval era. (laughs) Um, So you had this situation, in other words, where women were officially excluded from the university system and since mysticism ended up being A way to think about philosophical and theological matters outside of the university it ended up kind of being the case that if you were a woman and you wanted to be a philosopher during this time maybe being a mystic was the way to go
1: um yeah maybe i mean they wouldn't have thought of themselves as wanting to be philosophers but it is true that the religious life gave women who were sort of intellectually curious or thirsty sort of a place to go and an avenue into kinds of conversations that they just couldn't have in regular medieval life. And so you see this rise of what's called sometimes the tertiary movement in the 14th century where you have all these women who weren't sort of officially members of religious orders but would take vows, would remove themselves from kind of like village life or city life and dedicate themselves to prayer, dedicate themselves to sometimes like receiving visions. Julian of Norwich is a really famous example of somebody who does this in a kind of radical way, right? She's an anchorite, which means that you would ask to be literally walled up into part of a church. And so you would spend your life in one or two rooms without being able to leave for the rest of your life, or as long as you wanted to do this. And your job was to pray, to read the Bible, to talk to the people who came to ask you for advice or for wisdom or insight, right? And so Julian of Norwich is one of these people who talked about the kinds of visions that she had and was really influential Although, right, she's got no sort of formal university training. She's got no official status. You know, she's not like, oh, this is the professor of so-and-so. You should go talk to, you know, her about your questions. Um, It's more this kind of folk status. And one of the things that's interesting about how this works for women is that they often use the fact that they're women as a way to sort of claim access to divine authority so one of the ways that they get around being officially excluded from any kind of religious um, or political authority is by saying look you know that women are sort of poor and feeble and frail so something you know hildegard of, of bingen and Julian of Norwich and Catherine of Siena, all the sort of most famous female mystics say this, you know, like, I'm just this poor, feeble vessel, I can't possibly be coming up with all of this stuff on my own, right? So therefore, all the stuff that I'm about to tell you must come straight from God. And in that way, they get access to a kind of authority that, you know, is kind of hard to challenge and is part of why they become so prominent.
0: So in a lot of these writings that we're talking about, you know, often we're dealing with sort of a firsthand account of a transforming personal experience, you know, maybe involving some visions, you know, and that sort of calls to mind, I don't know, Carlos Castaneda or something, you know, Hmm. a a vivid recounting of a psychedelic experience you had, sort of like memoirs. Uh, I think that raises the question, was what these people (laughs) were doing philosophy?
1: So the question of whether what the mystics are doing is philosophy is a really interesting one. On the one hand, it's definitely not something they would have said that they were doing, right? They would have said at most, I'm probably not even doing theology here, right? I'm just recounting the kinds of experiences and the ways that God's working through me in the world. The way in which I think it's really interesting and significant for philosophers today is if you work on, say, anything in the Middle Ages, you're going to have an incredibly hard time finding any women who wrote anything. Because as I already said, women are explicitly excluded from the educational system and from the university system. That doesn't mean, though, that they weren't having discussions, and even discussions with each other, that addressed what we think of as extremely philosophical topics. And so the way that I think about medieval mysticism as a philosophical topic is if you want to know what attitudes were in the 13th century, say, about human nature, about divine attributes, about physicality, any number of things, even things like philosophy of language or what, uh, how to describe sense perception that's one of the places to go to balance out the purely scholastic picture that most people have spent their time studying. So the way I got into this project originally was that Bob Pazna and I were co-editing the Cambridge History of Medieval Philosophy volume and we hit the stage where we had all the chapters commissioned and they'd all started coming in and we were reading through them and realizing that according to everything we were seeing, you might as well just think that women didn't exist in the Middle Ages, right? They weren't being mentioned at all. And so we talked about how to handle this, and we decided that a really bad way to handle it would be to have a chapter on women and philosophy in the Middle Ages, right? Because that just seems so artificial and kind of tacked on and and it just sort of further marginalizes how this works. And so we sat down and we said, well, where do you find women writing in the Middle Ages? And this is where you find it, right? You find women either writing themselves or having their experiences written down by others when they're having these visions and when they're talking about their experiences. And in fact, there's a whole wealth of literature out there. And when you start looking at it that way, you find really interesting things about the relationship of intellect and will, right? So all of these sort of classically philosophical topics and things that everybody who works in medieval philosophy are discussing you find those topics discussed in the mystics you just have to it's almost like a retrieval project right so without being anachronistic you don't sort of go there and say no what did they think about the prospect of you know phenomenology and sense perception but you can read them and you can see them discussing the same kinds of topics that people in the universities were discussing and look to see what the similarities and what the differences are.
0: You've been interested in the contributions made both by the apophatic and effective mystical traditions to, you know, a nice classic philosophical problem, the problem of self-knowledge. Maybe we could just sort of step through both what the problem is and then how it was approached maybe from all three of these directions. So from the point of view of the philosophy taking place in the universities, from the affective mystical point of view and from the apathetic mystical point of view.
1: Okay, there's so much to say here. And this is a project I'm just starting to work on. So I'll probably in a year or two want to come back and be like, I'd like to correct the thing I said. (laughs) Uh, But part of um, this question of self-knowledge arises in the Middle Ages because you have, on the one hand, this theory of illumination coming from Plato and being carried on through Augustine, that's really strong in the Middle Ages. And there, the question of self-knowledge was a question of how you were revealed to yourself sort of through God's illumination of your intellect and will, right? At the same time, you've got the rise of Aristotelianism at the beginning of the 1200s, and that, picture of how we gain knowledge is very much by sense perception up. And that actually raises some real questions for the concept of self-knowledge. Because if all the knowledge that we have is supposed to come from our senses, the knowledge that we have of ourselves has to be based in some way on us making inferences from things that we figured out through our perceptions of the world around us. And... It's therefore a much sort of more problematic question in the Aristotelian tradition. How do we know ourselves? How can we know singulars at all? Aren't we just supposed to know universals, right? This hooks up with questions about God's knowledge of individual people and things like that. So you've got the, on the one hand, sort of platonic illumination story, and on the other hand, the Aristotelian ground up picture. And what the mystic tradition of both apathetic and effective strains add to that discussion is a much more sort of personal experiential narrative, right? So if you're interested in the question of self-knowledge in the Middle Ages, normally what you would do would be you'd go walk yourself to Aquinas and you would look up the questions on self-knowledge and you would get something like article 8 in which it is asked whether we can know ourselves and you'll have this very objective in quotes walk through what self-knowledge would entail the arguments for and against thinking that we could have it and then a conclusion about you know so it seems then that we do have knowledge of ourselves but it is imperfect because it is gained through you know the senses or the knowledge that we have of ourselves we receive through illumination elimination for god and in the mystic tradition it's a completely different kind of conversation because there you've got individual people who are experiencing or working to experience this kind of radical union with god either through loss of oneself or sort of fulfillment of one's you know sort of physical and mental selves and the kind of knowledge that you gain after you have one of those experiences, is one of the main topics that the mystics discuss, right? So it's not just that they talk about the visions that they have. They talk then about how this affects how they think about the world, how they think about themselves, how they've experienced themselves in connection with the divine. And so if you're really curious about what Medieval philosophy, in quotes, has to say about self knowledge, it's actually incredibly illuminating, no pun intended, to go look at what the mystics have to say about this. Because it's much more immediate and a much richer account of what it means to know yourself, right? For the apathetic mystics, knowing yourself is losing yourself. Self knowledge isn't what we're after, self knowledge is at best kind of. A recognition that ourselves are in need of sort of surrender to God. And in the effective tradition, it's this idea that self-knowledge is something that we're only going to achieve after we've had this kind of unifying, fulfilling experience of God. But that self-knowledge will involve physicality. And that's something that you almost never get in sort of traditional scholastic medieval discussions, right? Either of those kinds of endpoints.
0: I think there's something fairly intuitive about, I guess, both of those answers to what it means to know yourself. Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, you know, knowing yourself is, you might think of it as turning away from the world in the sense that knowing stuff about the world is knowing stuff about, like, not me. It's knowing (laughs) stuff about the things around me and Taking in information about those things around me that comes to me through my senses, knowing myself isn't something that happens via sense perception. It happens via I don't know introspection or something or you know it, anyway. It's different from the way I come to know about the world. So it, it's kind of intuitive that knowing yourself would involve you know turning away the distracting you know information from the senses or something. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, maybe the affective tradition, sort of that whole approach to self knowledge, also seems kind of intuitive because after all. I'm physically located here in this office. I'm not like off on Venus or in another dimension or whatever. So maybe coming to know about myself doesn't involve turning away from the world, but it just involves uh, taking in a bunch of extra information about the world or something. I don't know. Um, (laughs) Which of these two approaches do you think was on the right track? Or do you think maybe there's something we could get from both of them?
1: Nice. So personally, I think that the effective tradition has a lot of value that hasn't been recognized yet. And I think one of the reasons it hasn't been recognized is because, you know, until, I don't know, however you want to identify the beginning of the materialist movement or this picture that we're not, you know, souls stuck in bodies, but we're rather physical creatures, essentially, I think people who were really tempted towards, you know, this sort of Cartesian dualism, this idea that we're souls that have bodies as opposed to being living bodies, then knowledge of yourself involves that kind of Cartesian introspection, right? All you really need to do to know yourself is to sit quietly in an armchair and you know think for six days. Whereas for people who aren't particularly drawn to that kind of picture of what it is to be human and who believe that being human involves being a living body, then the effective tradition, I think, gives us a way of still connecting that with this idea of a kind of transcendental God, right? So it's not just that God's going to kind of zap your Cartesian soul with uh, all the knowledge and all the, you know, whatever it might possibly want. It's the idea that for you to know yourself and for you to really experience what you are is to experience this fulfillment on a physical level as well as any other level that's sort of open to you. So I find that really appealing and I also find it a really nice counterbalance to a lot of what you find in medieval philosophy where there's always this sort of deep distrust of the body and of physicality as something that pulls us away from God and pulls us away from union with the transcendent, I find the picture where physical fulfillment is part of our union with God to be really attractive. If you're trying to think about what the ultimate end of being human is, which is what everybody in the Middle Ages was trying to do, and what a lot of just people in general today are still trying to do, you, I think, when you think about what you want, and what you care about, you want to say that our lived physical experience is an integral part of it, not just something that's tacked on, and that could be sort of dropped off. And so the apathetic answer, where you just kind of merge into the divine being, or the sort of classically medieval Thomistic response, where our final end is intellective union with God where our body just kind of, anything that comes to our body is sort of an add-on, strikes me as not as appealing as this picture where what gets ultimately fulfilled is the whole of us.
0: Well, I'm not sure that I can claim divine authority here or anything, but I'm pretty sure that was a great interview. <laughs> um, thanks very much, Christina Van Dyke.
1: <laughs> Thank you, Matt.
0: If you have any questions about today's episode, give us a holler on Twitter at, at @LucidationsPod. And as always, you can post a comment to our blog at lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N, lucian.uchicago.edu, slash blogs, slash elucidations. On the blog, you can also explore our full back catalog of previous episodes. Thanks again for listening.